I was thinking it a few weeks ago, actually, when I was away and Jeremy was preaching that, as I listened to it, that so much study and preparation goes into each one of these sermons. You may not realize that, and I had the privilege to watch Jeremy just really study diligently, did a great job. And I, I thought, you know, so much of the information that we talk about on the scriptures kind of goes forgotten quickly because either we don't have a good note-keeping system or, you know, the app, we forget to go back and refresh ourselves. And so I began to look for a, a resource that may be helpful for some of you who are serious about taking notes about what's in what we're talking about and what we're studying, and came across this really cheap $3 little journal that has the full text of the, of the Gospel of John, uh, and then every other page is a blank journaling space. And I just thought this was ideal. I have a study Bible uh, that ha- or a Bible that has uh, room for notes and so on, but most of you don't. Michelle was telling me she just tries to write li- really little space. So these are back on the resource cart, and I actually have a few to give away here. Who would honestly really use this? And uh, somebody, well, uh, Jeremy, will you give these out to somebody who says they'll really use it? And otherwise, they're back on the resource cart. We have plenty, several over here. I want to see some guys raise their hand, all right? It's all ladies. What's up with that? One, two, three. Lauren Harrell has her hand up over here, too. Curtis Musgrove, there you go. All right, thanks, Curtis. Yeah, one over there, and then uh, I think Heather, and then Betsy Flowers has her hand. No, that's not Betsy, sorry. Somebody else back there in the back. Uh, The light's blinding me. Um, But anyway, uh, I hope you'll use those. We have more out there. I'll just give away whatever we have out there. They were only three bucks each. If you'd like to make a donation, you're more than welcome to do that. We're in John chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 today. John 6, 16 through 21. Let's read this together. It'll be on the screen uh, as well. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Pray with me, and we'll look at this passage of scripture. Father God, we are reminded today in just in a physical storm that we dealt with overnight, but just in the, metaphorically in the storms of life, how easy it is to truly take our eyes off you and put them on our own resources, our own plans, our own ideas, our own schemes, God. And so many times these may be slightly sprinkled with your word, but they're really not saturated with you. And God, I pray that you'll teach us how to truly keep our eyes upon you as we live this life that you called us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I think if there's been any one scripture that's impacted me over the last five years more than anything else, it's one little obscure parable that Jesus told in the book of Matthew. And in this parable, I've referenced this before, some of you are familiar with it. it tells, Jesus tells about a man who goes to a field, and we have no idea why he's going to the field, what he's looking for, but he goes to the field, and he has a shovel, and he starts to dig in the field, and he comes across something that he knows is holding a great treasure. And immediately, 
He covers it back up. He leaves the field. He heads home, and he begins to liquidate everything that he owns, all that he has, so that he can have enough money to go back and buy the field. And the scripture says, and it'll be on the screen as well, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. In his joy. Why did he have incredible joy? Because he knew what was in the field. He knew the treasure that was there, and so he joyfully gave up and liquidated all his assets because he knew what was waiting for him was much, much better than what he had. And Jesus, just in the way of telling these parables, makes such incredible truths known to us in a way that triggers our minds in ways that oftentimes we miss and they just, we just get bored with the truth of God. We're easily satisfied with a little bit of Bible knowledge, a little bit of scripture, a little bit of truth. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves just going through motions spiritually. And we forget the treasure that's in the field and how joyfully we should pursue it. We have our sound effect today of a storm, all right? That's a, the storm, the waters. Now, not to worry. That's just wind blowing through a vent. And so don't, don't panic if you, when hearing that. It's not thunder, okay, either. We went to the attic this morning, looked. We're safe, all right? Nobody worry. This gym history, uh, it's kind of a little scary, right? But we're, we're all good, I promise you. And so we, we, we try to find joy in so many different things, don't we? Honestly, all right? We pursue our careers. We pursue even relationships and as great and as joyful as they can be. Also, how many of you have experienced the opposite extreme of that as well? Where relationships that should be joyful and wonderful and bring you happiness bring nothing but destruction and pain and hurt and sadness. And the same thing with other things that we pursue. Think about, I, I know somebody who, who invested like such a great amount of time and energy and money into a college education and then uh, is going a completely different direction now to a career that really doesn't even need a college degree. And you probably know people like that. Because we think, man, this is going to be the field that brings the happiness. This is where the treasure is at. And we see it never lasts. It never brings the fulfillment that we're looking for. And so as we talk about God's truth today, I want us to remember a couple of things. I want us to remember that we can only find our fulfillment and happiness when we truly, truly keep our eyes on Jesus and come to worship him and to be overwhelmed by him. And God will settle for nothing less than his creation being completely overwhelmed in worship of Jesus. Let me say that again. I think it's on the screen. God will settle for nothing less than his creation being completely overwhelmed in worship of Jesus. You see why? Because God isn't satisfied with just a little bit of worship. He's not satisfied with a little bit of church attendance. He's not satisfied with a little bit of knowledge. God is not satisfied until we are worshiping Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God is pursuing in us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, tell it this way. It says that everyone is going to acknowledge this at some time or another. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess 
that the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he says that everyone is going to kneel and recognize Jesus Christ as Lord one day. Some people will do it grudgingly. In this life, they won't submit to God. They won't submit to Christ. And so at the end of life, they will, in fear and terror, submit and bow a knee before Jesus. Others will understand and get it and understand the gospel and put our faith in Christ on this earth. And we'll do this joyfully and willfully one day before Jesus as we stand before him. But this process between now and when we will bow a knee, every single person will now bow a knee before Jesus Christ. But for the believer, this process between now and that event is called progressive sanctification. We're growing to become more like Jesus. And Jesus is not going to be satisfied in your life until he is worshiped fully, which will culminate as you kneel before him one day and to confess him as you already have in your heart, believer, as Christ is Lord. And so this process that's going on, God is going to continue to expose your weaknesses. He's going to expose your situations, the locations he puts you in, all so that you'll cry out for what he knows you need, but what you've been content to live without. So this idea of being too easily satisfied I want that to just soak in today as we see what Jesus does for the disciples. And if we're a disciple, just like his 12 were disciples, we will not find durable happiness and lasting satisfaction in anything that is not King Jesus saturated. Let me say that again. If you're a true disciple of Jesus, you will not find durable happiness and lasting satisfaction until all of life is centered on King Jesus. Until you say, I get it. That's the treasure. Everything else has to be liquidated in order to buy the treasure. I want to live my life in such a way that everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that happens is about centering my life more and more on King Jesus. And that's where he is getting his disciples to, And that's where he needs us to be as well. So please, please, don't be easily satisfied with just a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of church, a little bit of theology. Understand that God is working to point you to a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So if we fall back to verse 4, early in our text, we'll see, and I told you last week that I would talk about this this week, is this idea of the Passover. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand And this is going to be underlying all the text that we look at today. Now, many of you know what the Passover is. In case you don't know what the Passover festival was, it was the Jewish festival which commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt. And that was under the leadership of Moses. And Moses was God's great leader, and he was a great liberator of the Israelites. His defining legacy is the fact that he led God's people out of Egypt to the promised land. So when Jesus comes on the scene, when he's born, Israel is once again in slavery. Now, this time they're not in a location in slavery. They're in slavery in their own land. The Romans had conquered most of the known world and had made Israel part of its empire. And the people of Israel were waiting for someone like Moses 
to show up and to remove them and pull them again out of slavery. They wanted to start a revolution to overthrow these foreign infidels, these captures that are in charge of them, that control them. So that's the backdrop of, of John chapter 6. So much of the imagery in this passage points to a greater Moses figure. And we see as the people, as we walk through this, the people see this. The, the disciples see this. But they misunderstand exactly what Jesus the liberator is going to do. Back in verse 14 and 15, we looked at those verses last week, kind of catches up to context. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They say, the prophet. What are they talking about? The prophet is back, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. So the Jews were looking for this great prophet figure. In fact, if you think back to chapter 1 of John, we talked about this a little bit, touched on it, because when John the Baptist was baptizing, they came to John and they asked him, are you the prophet? Are you that guy? Are you the prophet that we've been waiting for? And so they've been waiting for this Moses-like liberator to come. Verse 15, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 we looked at last week, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus got out of there. In fact, Mark tells us that he immediately took the disciples and ushered them off on the boat. Get out of here. We're not going to allow them to make us king. Why? Because Jesus wanted his disciples to know that before he could ever wear a kingly crown, he would have to wear a crown of thorns. Nobody was expecting the king, the liberator of Israel, to wear a crown of thorns. They should have been. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. There should have been some clue there to them. But they were not listening. They weren't paying attention. They wanted the king on their terms. We talked about that. And so this Moses-like figure in Jesus. And so back in Mark chapter 6, parallel passage, Jesus immediately ushers the disciples off and it says he tells him to go to the other side to Bethsaida uh, while he dismissed the crowd. And then verse 46 says that he went up to the mountain to pray. John doesn't tell us he goes up into the mountain to pray. He says, John, John just says Jesus gets away by himself. Mark tells us he goes up there to pray because Jesus, just like thinking in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The, the human side, the humanness of Jesus could have been tempted at some level, but without sin, this, this, they want him to be king. The popularity, it's, it's, it's a draw. Just like Satan, when he tempted Jesus. So Jesus runs to pray. Great lesson in that, not the sermon today, but great lesson in the fact that Jesus goes off to pray, but he sends his disciples off. Now, there's a little confusion here on exactly where the disciples went at this point, okay? Because our text in Mark says that they went, that Jesus told them to go to the other side to Bethsaida, but then we see in John chapter 6 that the evening came, verse 16, and his disciples went down to the sea to get in the boat and started to cross to the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So there's this little time period between. And if you can put the map back up on the screen for me, you'll see that the star represents where the feeding of the 5,000 more than likely happened. 
Well, Bethsaida is here, and Capernaum is across the sea. Sea of Galilee is a big sea, okay? I mean, it's, it's seven miles wide, eight miles wide, 12, 13 miles long. So it's a big, big body of water where storms were very violent. And so possibly one explanation, there's many, one possible rec- uh, explanation is they were just to go the short distance to this Bethsaida, although uh, they have uncovered that there was actually another city near Capernaum called Bethsaida as well. But regardless of that, it appears to me that the disciples had went to this nearby, possibly to this Bethsaida. They were waiting there. Jesus had not shown up. They didn't know what was going on, and it was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. Where is Jesus? They're confused. So let's get the context. Let's get the picture here for the disciples, okay? They have just been at probably the climax of Jesus' ministry. This is probably the peak of Jesus' popularity here. The crowd was ready to literally take him and make him king. They thought that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the prophet that had come. And the disciples were basking this in. They were like celebrities, right, to the, to the, the common people that day. The people saw the disciples, and these guys were celebrity-like figures. Jesus was extremely popular. But Jesus, to the surprise of the disciples, he sends them away by themselves, and he heads out after he dismisses the crowd. They're thinking, what's going on? They've given up their lives for Jesus. They've walked away from their livelihood. Many of them are not being around their families like they should, probably should have been or could have been, I guess is a better way, way to say it. Jesus had a plan for them, and he pulled them away even at some degree from their families. And so they'd given up everything. Jesus had sent them out to do ministry, to announce the kingdom was at hand. And then Jesus shows himself to be the new Moses, providing bread, as Moses did, right? Moses provided the manna through God's power. He provides the bread for the people, and the people wanted to make him king. And the disciples just did not understand it. And here they were, Jesus, they they were waiting on Jesus And Jesus had not yet come. Where was Jesus at? Verse 18, 17, they decide they're going to leave without Jesus. They're going to head on. Verse 18, they get out on the sea. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? Did Jesus know what he was doing when he sent them out there? Of course, just like when he tested last week, he tested Philip with the bread and the loaves and the fish. He knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he knows what he is doing when he sends them out by themselves. And what a great metaphor or picture for us today about the storms of life, okay? And this is one of those times where you're like, ah, I hear this. I know where you're going with this. But think about it for a second. Life is so full of ups and downs. It's so easy to get comfortable and go through life and all of a sudden, boom, something happens Life changes and turns on a dime. And we think, where in the world is Jesus in all this? Why would Jesus ever do this to me? And if you've been to one of those moments in your life before, you know what I'm talking about. I don't care how spiritual you are, there's some questioning in the back of your mind of God's plan. Because God never tells us, he doesn't give us a roadmap and say, here's what I'm going to do in your life. Here's what I'm going to do with your life. Here's how it's all going to work out. So many times, the things that we think are going to sustain us, our Bible knowledge, our church community, 
while these things are, are necessary and critical, sometimes we can take our eyes off of Jesus who promised to sustain us and put our eyes on a lot of other things like just our knowledge and our wisdom, our understanding, but we're never going to figure it out. I often refer to Paul Tripp because I read his New Morning Mercies every morning and never fails there's something that comes across that really relates well to the sermon. And he said this a few days ago. He said, real sturdy, lasting peace, peace that doesn't rise and fall with circumstances, isn't to be found in picking apart your life until you have understood all the components. Why? Because you're never going to do that. You will never understand it all because God, for your good and his glory, keeps some of it shrouded in mystery. So peace is found only in trust. Trust of the one who is in careful control of all the things that tend to rob you of your peace. It's about trust. And I'm sorry if that sounds simple. It's a simple concept, but it takes a lifetime to learn. You've got to trust Jesus. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Not on your knowledge, not on your community, not on your moral standing, not on your life. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And Jesus promises us not to make the storms disappear necessarily, but he promises to be there with you in the storms of life. He promises that he will bring the joy in the morning. And while that fully won't be understood until we submit and, and, and joyfully submit one day before him and bow our knee before him, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy and rest that you have for eternity. That'll be fully realized one day, and it'll be, it can be more and more realized on this earth, even through the pain and the struggles and the ups and downs. That's not my word. That's Jesus. That's the word of God, and that's the only thing that I can bank my life on because I don't have enough experiences and wisdom to give you the insights you need. Only God's word can give you that insight, and it has to be trusted. And so the disciples were in the storm, and it made no sense to them why Jesus had not showed up. Let me, let me just say this, practically speaking. When you find yourself in difficulties in life, I think there's some practical things that you can begin to ask. I think you need to ask, is this a result of deliberate disobedience? Am I running from God? Like Jonah, right? Jonah found himself in a mess because he was running from God. And so what are you doing in your life? Are you, are you embracing deceit, hypocrisy, habitual sin? Because God promises that he's going to get your attention. When I was a senior in high school, a long time ago, senior in high school, I was a true believer. I knew I was a true believer. Definitely had a lot of ups and downs. But I knew I was, I was in Christ. But I was struggling to live the way that God wanted me to live. And not just struggling as we all struggle, but there was a lot of hypocrisy in my life. And I, I remember one preacher was preaching on God disciplines his children. And it got me a little bit fearful because I thought, well, my life's pretty easy. It's pretty smooth. This is absolutely a true story. And I, I warn you not to do this unless you're serious about your relationship with God. I prayed and I said, God, you said that you would discipline your children when they're running from you. I said, I don't feel any discipline. I'm a little nervous. Am I your child? 
I said, I need to see some discipline. All right, that was, that was a pretty bold thing for a 17-year-old to pray. True, absolute true story. The next night, we were playing a basketball game four hours away from my hometown in a town called Clarksburg, West Virginia. And I went up for a rebound, and at the same time, our center, he went to get the rebound as well and swiped his hand across my face, and his finger went deep into my left eye. I immediately hit the ground, and I wasn't thinking, can I still see what's going on? All I could do was lay there and think, God, there's the answer to prayer you just gave me. Well, I tore my retina in three or four places. It wasn't until a few years ago I was able to get those cataracts from the result of that taken care of. It stuck with me for years and years and years. What a reminder, and I tell this story today as a reminder that God gets our attention when we're running in disobedience. Be aware. Other times, it's just a reminder that you must kneel before him, that we begin to get prideful. We begin to think we got it, that we got life by, covered, we got it handled, and we become, like the disciples, very prideful, very arrogant. And so God gets our attention, and he reminds us that we need to kneel before him. And he brings challenges into our life. He brings situations into our life so that he will be what we worship, not all the other things that we put in the way. And so in verse 19, back to the disciples. Here they are out on the sea, and they're rowing. They've been going three or four miles. They're struggling not just physically, but they're struggling mentally here. They don't know what in the world's going on and where Jesus is at. And they see Jesus, don't really know it's him right at this point, walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, as any of us would be, right, if we see somebody walking across the water. What we have here is we have the creator showing his mastery over his creation. And we can't fathom or think about walking on the water. And what's interesting, over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus refuses to perform miracles just to show or prove to his skeptics who he was. But don't miss this. This miracle here is only for the disciples. He doesn't explain it to the crowd. We'll see next week. This is simply for them. They were struggling. Their faith was weak. They were confused. They were disappointed. And they see someone walking across the water. And look what Jesus responds to them in verse 20. But he said to them, It is I do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, if you're following along in a different version of the Bible, yours may be worded slightly different. Here's why. Translators struggle with exactly, was Jesus making a bigger statement here than what we notice and see in the text? And so some of them are worded, don't be afraid, I am here. I am here. And while it's debatable whether Jesus was using the name of God there, I think with everything else going on in this passage and all this Moses imagery, we have the 5,000 fed. Moses gave manna. Jesus feeds the 5,000. You have Moses parted the seas. Jesus walks on the sea. And Jesus shows up here in the storm walking on the sea. I think he said, I am here. Moses, when he encountered God in the burning bush, and he said, who do I tell the people that's going to deliver him? Who am I coming in the name of who? He says, tell them that I am that I am. And here Jesus is, don't be afraid. 
I am here. I'm here, guys. Trust me. Have faith in me. And so Jesus is showing his disciples that he is one and the same with God. The great I am who made manna fall from heaven and parted the Red Sea. That's who showed up at their boat that day. In verse 21, then they were glad, of course they were, to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, what's great about the parallel passages and looking at the different Gospels, and we can't do this every week or this would go on forever, but I appreciate Charles Whitaker a few years ago giving me a parallel Bible where it has all the texts of all four Gospels put together into one. And it's a beautiful resource. And I forgot the name of it, or I would tell you right now. You can ask Charles afterwards. And it's, it's, it's great. But if you look at Matthew's account of this verse, he says, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I don't know why John chose to leave this out, but this is the first time the disciples worship Jesus. This is the first account that we have where they truly, it says, they worshiped him. You see what Jesus was doing? This was a private miracle for them to get their attention, to help them to see that he was so much more than a miracle worker, so much more than somebody who's just going to come alongside and give you what you want and let you boost them up and make them king for your glory and for your benefit. Jesus was special. And not only was he special, and not only was he going to go to a cross, which was still going to confuse them until after they saw him resurrected, but Jesus knew that he, he, he has this monster job, this huge task for these disciples to do. We're sitting here today, practically speaking, because the disciples did their job. Guys who were afraid, who ran and hid, who constantly failed, who were always, even the, the moments where Jesus was trying to reveal to them his death on the cross, and they're like, who's going to be the greatest? Jesus. I mean, these guys just didn't get it. But you don't either, right? And I don't. Why do I know I don't get it? Because so many times when things don't go my way, I start to worry and fret and panic and get nervous and question God's goodness instead of keeping my eyes on Jesus. I had a situation even this week where just I was just struggling with something. And I told God, I promised God, I said, it seems like I can't stop struggling with this, but you know what I can do? Every time I start to struggle with it, I'm going to pray. Every time the struggle hits my mind, I'm going to pray and put my eyes on Jesus. Did the struggle go away? No. But you know what? I got a lot of praying in and got a lot of focus on Jesus. And it kept popping back into my mind over and over again. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Most of you probably do. Whether that's, it's that besetting sin that's been following you around forever that you can't get victory over. Maybe it's a just hard relationship that you're dealing with at home. Maybe it's a kid who's just not doing what you thought they would do at this point in their life. Maybe it's a job that's just terrible and awful and you're trying to be a witness and it's not working out so well. Whatever the situation is, you have these things that just ping in your mind again and again. And Satan is trying to just tempt you to worry and fret and question God. 
Just keep turning it back to Jesus. That's practically what looking at Jesus and seeing Jesus is. It's just refocusing upon him for our joy and for his glory. That's worship. That's worship. So here's my, my encouragement and my challenge, and I plead with you today. Many of you are faithful reading your Bible. Many of you know a lot of theology. Some of you are at church every single week. But you become easily satisfied. And Jesus is not the focus. These things, you keep doing them, you stay at it, but you've lost your focus upon Jesus. You've lost your worship. You've forgotten that all these things are not ends in themselves. They're to bring you and point you to Jesus. You know how I know that? Because I struggle the same thing. I open my Bible, I read my Bible, and some days I just lack focus. I'm easily satisfied with, I did that. And typically what happens with me, and I've talked to my fight club guys about this, typically what happens to me is my prayer life is where it suffers the most. Because I can read it, check it off, but it's the spending time with Jesus and, and just marinating on the text and reading the truth of Scripture while I'm conversing with Jesus. That's what I'm challenging you to do today, is to not let your Bible knowledge and all these things be ends in themselves, but to let them point you to Jesus. I read this true story, crazy. A guy about eight or ten years ago bought just a, a very small amount of Bitcoin, all right? If you're like me, you have no idea what Bitcoin is, but here's the thing. It's worth a lot of money, okay? Ten years ago or so, he bought a small amount of Bitcoin. Well, this stuff just kept increasing in price. Crazy, crazy, crazy. And he realized that he had this Bitcoin on his hard drive, okay? This is, this is a currency, but it's not an actual currency. I don't understand that. Ask Jeremy. He'll explain it to you, all right? But it's, it's, it's actually valuable, extremely valuable. But you need this key, this passcode to get to it. Well, when he bought this years ago, it was even like, was this stuff even going to be valuable? Is it going to be worth anything? It's really more a novelty type thing. Well, 10 years later, true story, Google it. He's sitting on, I mean, $60 million of Bitcoin, and he can't remember the key. And he gets 10 tries, all right, 10 tries before it just shuts him out forever. He's gone through eight. He's got two left. He's trying to figure out what to do. That's us. The key is Jesus. We're sitting on a field full of treasure, but yet we hold on to our lives and say, I want to find some happiness here with my stuff and with Jesus. And we're not selling it all, liquidating it all for his glory. And while that doesn't mean necessarily selling all your stuff, it means what I said earlier, that every single activity of our life should be centered around King Jesus. And there's some things where I can eliminate and say, there's no way I can center that around King Jesus. There's some things I say, I know I can center that around King Jesus. And then there's this gray area where like, I'm not sure really how to do that, all right? Like, I love football. Am I really centering that around King Jesus? 
How can I center that around King Jesus? I don't have an easy answer for you. All I know is Jesus will not be your puppet, as I said last week. Jesus refuses to be served half-heartedly, and he will not be satisfied until he is king, and that will culminate one day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus, your Lord. And some will do it, fear and trembling, because they're forced to do it, even though they're probably going to be falling on their face in terror, and they, and they can't come out of their mouth fast enough. Please, give me a second try, Jesus. Give me a second chance. I had no idea what your glory looks like. And then others of us will get there, and the blood of Jesus Christ is the only reason that we stand worthy and accepted, because of what he did on the cross for us. And we kneel before, and we say, we're unworthy, but Jesus was worthy. And we're glad that we put our faith and trust in him and him alone for our life, not only in the eternity, but for now. And we kneel before him and we confess him as Lord. That's worship. Worship is, it's all about you and I'm responding to it. It's understanding that all joy comes in your glory and not in mine. And here's the thing, liquidating and giving it up is joy. For joy, you know what's winning ahead. But that's a faith issue there, right? The faith issue is knowing that truly that's so much more valuable than this. And so when the faith gets to the point where you understand that, you're willingly and happily liquidating every area of your life so that you can worship King Jesus. And we ask questions like, is this okay or is that okay? And we begin to ask these questions about these gray areas. And I think Jesus looks at us and says, liquidate it all for my glory and your joy, your joy. So the call today is a call for joy. And the head is, no, Jesus is the key to worship. And here's the part where a lot of us will fail. Because the heart says, that it, you have to be still before God. And some of you can't do that. You can't still yourself before God. You're unwilling to range your schedule where you can be still before God every day and focus upon King Jesus and hear from him. You're unwilling to do that. You're not liquidating your life. You're holding on to your life. And Jesus says, liquidate it. Liquidate it for my glory. And then our hands. I encourage you to implement just a praying of the scriptures. As you're reading the scriptures, pray the scriptures. Because some of you are great at task. You can knock that chapter out or those verses out, but the, the relational side to it is what you struggle with. Pray through the scriptures. As God shows you truth in scripture, just pray that back for your, yourself, for your family, for your church family for those around you, for those you're influencing at work, just allow those scriptures to begin to be your prayer for God's glory. Because it will be, I promise you, I promise you, for your joy. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus told us, unless we're willing to give up everything for you, we're not worthy to be your disciples. And while that is, is so confusing and it's tough and it's difficult, God, you know best, and your word is truth. 
And we can either believe it or we can discount it.